Hey guys, it's Will, and I wanted to um, tell you about the Headless Motorcycle Rider of Elmore, Ohio. Now, I used to live in the town, and supposedly what happened is a man by the name of Michael, from what I have heard, was off to war, I believe World War One, and he was coming home from the war to go see his girlfriend on his motorcycle. And when he arrived there, she ended up with another man. She might have either gotten pregnant or just cheated on him left him for the other man. So what happened is he stormed off, and he was going across the bridge, and supposedly a cable snapped, severed his head completely, and his body went into the river below. And so they were able to find his body and his motorcycle, but not the head. So now when you go into this certain bridge, I forget the name of it, you honk your horn a couple of times and you flash your light a couple of times or something like that, and supposedly he will follow you. Now, I had this happen, and it was, of course, scary. Now, if you go to Elmore in October, they actually have a headless motorcycle rider rally there, and it is insane. Have you heard the story of... <laughs> The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Tonight's the night where goodies are given to ghouls, goblins, and ghosts. And for every trick-or-treater and non-trick-or-treater alike. For those with a kid or the monster in all of us. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest, and the living and the dead could come in. Time where the dead can come alive again. The dead is nothing we have to be afraid of. it's just a story hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake and i'm sam and we're here to tell you a spooky story okay so we love halloween like pretty ridiculous amount like we get really excited i make my kids decide by the end of august what they want to be so i can start doing halloween costumes we talk about it all year it's kind of a thing for us i know that's shocking so surprising. Everyone's like, what? These two like Halloween? No way. But we do. We like Halloween a lot. So. We have been working diligently on creating an amazing month of Halloween episodes. We are so excited about this. And we want to encourage you to get in the spooky spirit and send us some of your favorite Halloween legends. And these can be ghost stories. They can be like creepy things that happened to your friend one time. They can be the local house you don't go knocking at. Or the time you went and knocked at that house. And how your friend never came back. We're not going to write it for you. You know what? You can do it. You can do it yourself. You do it. Tell us your Halloween stories. Right. You can email us at justastorypod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at justastorypod. Or you can call the urban legend hotline we had a new caller from new jersey call in and leave us a story and we will be getting to that soon we promise but you can reach us at 512-222-3375 we would love to hear your spooky stories and speaking of the urban legend hotline this story comes straight from it it does and interestingly enough this story comes from will one of our listeners and he called and You'll understand why this is funny very soon. The first time, he got cut off. He was cut off. Uh, uh, uh. That'll be funny in a minute. 
you'll laugh with us. But he did call back because he's a trooper and he left us a great story. And I think, and you heard him recount that at the beginning of the episode. So now we're going to run down a little bit more information on the Elmore Rider. It's the Elmore Rider is a great ghost story, urban legend from Ohio. I love this one because it's specific to a place. It has highly developed characters. It has like a way for you to interact with the legend. It's got a lot of stickiness and it's got a lot of stuff to like delve into. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about legends and folklore is how they change over time. And so this one really started in the 20s with, so the original story known as The Light was around in at least the 1920s. There was no mention of a motorcycle or any specification of what the light was. It would appear in the middle of the bridge, kind of flutter around a little bit, and then move to the west and disappear inside an abandoned house. Okay, well that seems rife for speculation. Of course. So you guys start adding more details to this story. And you would have that the house was haunted, or that... The light was the spirit of a man who hung himself inside that house. Yeah, that seems like what I would conjure (laughs) if I were trying to decide what this mysterious light was. It's perfectly reasonable. But then the story began to change, and they can trace this at least back to the 40s. So it was the new edition. So this is when the motorcyclist comes in. In 1915, the world was at war. The Great War? The war to end all wars. Yeah, that didn't work. But anyway, that was just a story. (laughs) And you had this young man, and he was a motorcycle enthusiast. He had his girl. His sweetheart? For sure. And they would go cruising around on his motorcycle around the backwoods of Elmore, Ohio. I bet he had a sidecar. Sidecars were really popular back then. It would not be nearly as cute. (laughs) And, you know, everybody in town knew that they'd get married soon. But in 1917, the U.S. entered World War I. And I'm assuming our motorcyclist did, too. He's a good patriot, joins the army, goes off to Europe. Okay. How's he do? Well, he does okay. You know, he sends her letters as, as often as he can, saying how much he loves her, and he can't wait to get back to her, and they're going to get married and have 2.5 children. White picket so, fence. For the sure. works. Okay. So, he comes home. And it's all peaches and daisies. Everybody's happy and they go back to riding their motorcycle together, right? Of course not. Of course not. So the war ends in 1918. He comes back March 21st of 1919 and immediately gets home, says, hi, Ma, jumps on his motorcycle and heads over to his sweetheart's house. As you do. And when he gets there, he pulls up, gets off his motorcycle. I'm sure he grabs flowers, I'm sure, or something. Chocolates. And walks in to find his his, true love waiting for him. His true love in the arms of another man. That hussy. Hussy. So he's frozen in rage, runs, jumps on his motorcycle, guns the engine and takes off. And as he's driving at breakneck speeds, blinded with rage, he's going over a bridge that crosses a muddy creek. Okay. And in his anger, he slides off the bridge, going into a farmer's field. And being decapitated by the barbed wire. Yeah, that'd make a ghost. That would make a ghost. So as the legend goes, no one wanted to speak about it for a while. 
Okay, right. So it wouldn't have been written up in newspapers. There might not be any written accounts and things right. of that nature. Kind of hush, hush. Hush, hush. It's very tragic. We don't want to talk about it. But then people began to see lights on the bridge. A single light? A single light on the anniversary of his death on March 21st. Oh my goodness. And the legend grew to be that if you drove your car on the bridge and flashed your light three times, a ghostly light would appear and come around the bend and then disappear without a sound halfway across the bridge. So this headless motorcyclist will come at your call on the anniversary of his death. That is such a great story. But, you know, looking into it, you know, all the websites said they couldn't find any stories of decapitated motorcyclists around this time period. Well, it's because it was hush-hush. I love when a legend has plausible deniability built into its structure. It's the best. You can't disprove it. Well, I have some theories. I've been poking around in the histories a little bit. What have I told you about poking around in histories? I, um, I don't know. I was busy poking around in histories. I was ignoring you. (laughs) I was snooping, looking for that turn-of-the-century gossip, you know. (laughs) All right, you meddling kid. What'd you find? I found out that there's kind of a, a thick association with motorcycles and soldiers, World War I soldiers specifically, and a lot of association with soldiers, motorcycles, and Ohio. And I thought you were going to say death. Well, yeah, there was lots of death, too. Lots and lots of death. If you Google, or no, like if you go to like a news archive and you search motorcycle crash 1919, I did it on two separate engines, and I got over 2,000 results just in Ohio for that search criteria on both search engines. <laughs> so there was a company called the Cleveland Motorcycle Company, and they were in, um, just just guess, where do you think they were? Akron. Oh, you're bad at guessing. They were in Cleveland, Ohio. They were the sole supplier of lightweight motorcycles to the Army and Navy during World War I. Nice. How'd they get that gig? Well, they won a race. A race? A race. They did a 236-mile race between the Potomac and Virginia with other motorcycles from other manufacturers, and they finished in 15 hours. Speedy. So during the war, 100% of their product and energies at their factory were put into making bikes and shipping them directly to France. And they were used during the war. So you have this tie between World War One, soldiers, motorcycles, Ohio. Okay, you can see some background of why this would all be put together. There was also this kind of grand motorcade at the end of the war that was happening in 1919. And it was the first time that something like this had been undertaken. It was a transcontinental trip of an army motor truck train. And it was in all of the papers. Like that was talked about everywhere. And it had motorcycles in the cavalcade. And they were interviewing a man about it. And he said, it's hard to see how we would have gotten along without them in service. And he goes on to talk about how they can turn around where autos can't go. And how fast they are. And how they can speed ahead into town and let them know they're on their way. And just how essential they are for service. And then it seems like when the the glory be hallelujah motorcade came to Ohio, there may have been an incident where tank ran into a motorcycle a tank yeah like a like an army yeah, like a tank. tank a tank and so that was in all the papers so there's again soldiers and crashes in world war one and motorcycles in ohio so the lesson is don't get in the way of a tank good thought got it 
And then as I was reading through the 2000 search results I got for Motorcycle Crash 1919, I noticed that there were a very high percentage of the crashes where there was fatality. People's skulls were crushed. That's what happens when you don't wear a helmet. That's why we call them donor cycles. Yeah. And the most common deaths seem to be crushed skulls, broken necks, or being eviscerated by handlebars. Lovely. Yeah. And there were a surprising amount of like streetcar and train on motorcycle incidents, which I will let you figure out who won and who lost in those fights. And of all the accidents I read about, and I read about a lot of accidents, there were a couple that stood out to me as being like potential origin stories, like sparks for this legend. Starting points. Yeah. Because, you know, gossip grows. So one of those was about a motorcycle race that was actually held in Pennsylvania, but the two participants were from Ohio. They're from East Palestine, Ohio. And their names were Harold Woodling and Wallace Dilworth. And they were in an accident and amateur race at Junction Park. They were both 22 years old. Woodling was hurled through a fence alighting upon his head. A fence? A fence. Hmm. Landing on his head. I'm guessing that did not go well. No, he died from a compound skull fracture. So Woodling was the one that died. And the guy that was in his sidecar, as I told you, they were big on the sidecar. Dilworth was injured pretty badly, but he did not a light on his head when he went through a fence. Woodling died on his 22nd birthday, leaving behind a wife and a small child. Dilworth had just returned from overseas. Read World War I. Uh, he had been reported killed or missing in action several times. His father had died in a train accident the week before, and his mother had died as soon as he returned to the United States. Whoa, curse on that family. Yeah, it feels very cursed and spooky and weird. So just some added context before I tell you like my favorite one that I found. A speed limit for motorcycles was introduced in 1919, which was previously unheard of. Which, can you imagine? Can you imagine no speed limits, no real road signs, no agreed upon drive on this side of the road? No, well, they, they barely had roads. It was bedlam. It was bedlam with Motors. <laughs> There's also a flat rate tax on motorcycles where other vehicles were taxed by weight and horsepower calculations, and you had to do lots of math. But motorcycles were just flat rate tax of 250 And interestingly, there was a marked decline in the number of motorcycle licenses issued in the state of Ohio during 1919. So in 1917, 22,000 licenses were issued for motorcycles. In 1918, 21,000. But in 1919, only 3,000 licenses were issued. And um, the officials speculated that this was because all of the motorcycle riders are in the Army or the Navy. Yeah, all the men are gone. Mm -hmm. All the young men, the motorcycle riders. Right. Another fun tie, fun fact to Ohio, is apparently Jack Dempsey was in town boxing. His manager was driving and he hit a motorcycle with a sidecar that happened to contain two army recruiting officers <laughs> oh. and they were badly injured in the accident but again soldiers crashes ohio my favorite though of all the stories i found was this little snippet it was in a paper in 1919 and the headline is safe from war hurt and crash Rainbow Division veteran may die from motorcycle accident. What's a Rainbow Division? Okay, the Rainbow Division is like a badass group of United States soldiers where they put together people from all over the country and they were some of the first people to go in to the fighting during World War One. 
and they went through hell. Actually, here's a good way to put it. So their original insignia was a full rainbow, like a full arch. And after half their group died, they lost half of the men that were fighting with them. It turned into half a rainbow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's It goes nowhere. Yeah. Isn't that awful? Yeah. And they had them specially commissioned while they were overseas, and they're all, like, hand done by old ladies. So they're, like, tragic looking, and it just hurts my heart. But anyway, so they were a bunch of badasses, even if they were called the Rainbow Division. Hey. (laughs) Whoa. Let's back up. Rainbows. It's all rainbows and sunshine. That's a Uh, thing that people say. But rainbows, I mean, rainbows can be pretty hardcore. Rainbows and sunshine. It literally means everything's okay and lovely. I mean, the Vikings, the Norse gods, had a rainbow bridge. I mean, come on. Hymdale, Idris Alba. Okay, so that is true. And maybe you have a point. But what does it say that they officially cut their rainbow bridge in half so the warriors couldn't get to heaven. <laughs> oh no, it's terribly, terribly tragic. So this man named Gilbert John was 21, and he had gone in with the earliest Americans in the war, made it through the entire war, came home, he's riding his motorcycle, and he had to swerve. Why did he swerve? To miss some puppies? No, to miss a mother and her child crossing the street. Was she pushing a pram? I think so. And then he crashed into the side of a car that was turning, so he T-boned a car. The handlebars of his motorcycle, quote, pierced his abdomen so badly that his intestines were exposed. Oh, so he was eviscerated. Yes, he was. He was in very serious condition at the time of riding, uh, and then he was at least going to be paralyzed. In one of his legs. Doctors were pretty sure. So he had been overseas in the war with the badass Rainbow Division. Mm-hmm. Made it through. Yes, he was also a prisoner of war in a German prisoner of war camp for two months and reported dead and missing several times. Oh my gosh. He swerved to miss a lady and her baby because he is an American hero. And then he got some handlebars in the abdomen. But I have an update. Yes. So I couldn't find a follow-up. I couldn't find any kind of funeral notice or obituary for Gilbert John in Ohio in 1919. So I just went to find a grave, and I looked him up. His name is Gilbert A. John. And I found a man who was a World War I veteran, had the same year of birth in this, the right town, and he died in 1971. So I don't know if he made a miraculous recovery or if there were just two of him, but I think he may have made it, guys. I think, made he, it. I think he may have made it. Nice. So maybe happy ending after all. Well, you know, when I think of stories with headless writers, <laughs> how can you not think of the legend of Sleepy Hollow? Well, it's got legend right there in the title, so it's, our, it's in our wheelhouse. It's a legend. It's a legend. They've told us. <laughs> no, I agree. I think that that is... Probably one of the more iconic American characters. An American ghost story. Yeah. It's right up there with the raven. <laughs> Let's look. Like, is it just the headless thing? No, there are a lot of similarities. Right. I was thinking there might be more than one. So I'm the bridge, right? That's that's an integral part of Sleepy Hollow as well. The bridge, the ghost, and the headless horseman was supposedly a soldier. So let me let me tell you the story and kind of summarize it for you. It's a fantastic story. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, written by Washington Irving. It was published in 1819 in a collection called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gent. 
Wait, it was published in 1819? It was. So 100 years before this legend. To the date. Dun, dun, dun. Was it published yeah. on March 23rd or yeah. whatever? <laughs> I wish. So you should definitely, if you've not read the story, go read it. Or it's available through LibriVox. Which is a free audiobook service. Right. They do public domain works. Right. And they'll have volunteer readers. So sometimes you can get people with that do character voices and stuff like that. You never know what you're going to get. It's like four scum chocolates. But yeah. If you, you can commit to LibriVox, you can commit to Washington Irving, or it might be available on Amazon Prime in the form of a Disney animated cartoon, which is amazing. <laughs> Bing we- Crosby does all the voices. And it's actually pretty faithful to the story we may have researched with our children the other day (laughs) they helped and so this story published in 1819 is set in 1790s new york state and to quote a sequestered glen has long been known by name of sleepy hollow some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is this place will continue under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Mr. Irving is setting us up. Setting the story up. (laughs) No, he's, he's... Okay, sure. To believe that there's some sort of supernatural hold on this little... Village. This is a mystical, spooky place where Indian wizards... (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard of an Indian wizard, but thank you for that. They have made it so people sort of interact with the spiritual realm more easily. Ah, the veil is more thin here. The most infamous specter is that of the Headless Horseman. And he is supposedly a a Hessian trooper. That had his head shot off by an American cannonball in 1776. That would make a ghost. And he, quote, rides forth to the scene of battle in a nightly quest for his head. So every night he's like redoing that route. Mm -hmm. And while he was buried in the old Dutch cemetery, he's unable to cross the bridge into town. Okay, so does this go back to our hospitality threshold like sacred barrier kind of ideology right there's that sacred barrier he cannot cross the bridge into town so they haven't invited him is what you're saying right and if he were to cross the bridge he would vanish according to rule in a flash of fire and brimstone so irving has set up our background we have this spooky place with these ghosts we have our rules we have rules in enters our main character, our kind of anti-hero, Ichabod Crane. Which, by the way, still one of the greatest names. It's a great name. It's, he actually got the name from a military officer that he'd met. Like, there was a real Ichabod Crane? Right. He's not based on him, but that's where supposedly maybe he got the name from. I mean, that guy has the market cornered on amazing names, like Rip Van Winkle, Ichabod mm-hmm. Crane. Like, good job, Irving. 
And Ichabod Crane is this lanky new Yankee. Lanky Yankee, you say? That's right, from Connecticut. Ew, why don't we like Connecticut? I don't know, they just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. It is just a negative attribute of his character. Is it because he's not from there? Is it just the outsider thing, you think? That is a big part of it. And so he gets there, he's really described in this very like tongue-in-cheek way of just this consumer. He just is always eating, he really doesn't care about his students much, but it's like the only place he holds power. But he treats the kids well because their mothers feed him and take care of him. And he meets this lovely young coquette. A coquette? Oh no. Heavens. Named Katrina Von Tassel. Katrina Von Tassel, the coquette. He is enraptured by her. Smitten with a coquette? But he is more enraptured by her father's money, 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 money. Sweet, sweet Von Tassel money. And I was actually shocked to see this portrayed in the Disney cartoon. It's extremely close to the story. I was shocked that they did a scene where he's like daydreaming about her father's money. Yes. So he decides he is going to marry her because she's the only child and he is going to get all of the Van Tassel farm fortune. Good plan. But he has competition. Oh no. Abraham Bon Brones Van Brunt. That's a lot of name. Well, so he goes by Bron Bones. Well, he must be evil. No, he's really not in the story. He's just that traditional kind of heroic manly man guy. How is he characterized? Is it positive or is it sort of... You have to read the story in the way that it's meant to be as very tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. Like, like Ichabod Crane describes like this great singer and dancer, and they describe him as... Oh, I don't know exactly what it was, but something like there was not a fiber in his body that was not moving while he danced. <laughs> so he's twitchy. He thinks he's awesome. He thinks he's awesome. Bron Bones is also competing for Katrina Von Tassel's hand. And it's kind of alluded to that she kind of stokes this competition. Well, who wouldn't? A little coquette. And Bron Bones is constantly kind of playing pranks on Ichabod. And Ichabod knows that Bron Bones would kick his ass. And so he just kind of lets it roll off. Okay. Basically, he just avoids him. <laughs> so you have, like, the bully. I kind of, I think of Brom Bones as sort of being a bully. Am I reaching? You know, I mean, he's kind of characterized that way, but I don't know. You know, he, he is a little bit. But also, you have to remember Ichabod's this outsider that comes in from nowhere and is really just after her money. Right, so maybe she would be better off without him. Maybe he's just looking out for her best interest. Well, you know, this is a weird thing (laughs) in that the story is more about characters than plot. Shocking. Because it's 200 years old. Um, No, that's because it's American short fiction. That's 200 years old. Yeah. So Crane is invited to the Van Tassel's harvest party or their Halloween party. In the party, he's hanging out with the men. And they're all smoking and drinking, and they start to tell war stories. And these war stories transition into ghost stories. So again, you have that kind of easy collapse between the two. Right. That easy collapse between history. And Ron Bones steps up, and he tells the tale of the headless horseman in a time where he raced him and beat him in the woods at night. 
So Sounds pretty legit. He should call in. Yeah, and so Ichabod's this really superstitious guy. They talk about him reading Cotton Mather's stories, which he's one of the preachers that was involved in the... Salem Witch Trials. Right. And he's reading this non-existent book <laughs> about witchcraft in New England. And so he really gets pulled into these stories. And he's pretty spooked. You know, he has a plan. He is going to propose to Katrina Von Tussel. When? That night. <gasps> and they don't say what happens. Oops, he could have used an editor. No, because it's actually great. Because he says that he kind of walks away in like a despondent manner. <laughs> and so he's sad. And he's riding his plow horse that he borrowed home through the dark woods and as oh my he's, god this is so this the symbolism is so good i just right. love it i just love it yeah and he's described as his legs are up he's this tall lanky guy and he's riding the saddle that's not made for him and this old plow horse called gunpowder and he's riding this horse along and he's just starting to see you know the limbs of the trees move the shadows cast by the moon hearing creaks and bumps in the night. And in the story, all the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He's psyching himself out. He really is. And as he turns the bend, he sees a large, dark, silent rider. No. And as he gets closer, you know, he's kind of scared. And he notices the writer has no head. <gasps> Not only does he have no head, but his head is on the pommel of his saddle. What's a pommel? <laughs> I thought he was looking for his head. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, shit. He found it. It's on now. So Igbod, scared to death, starts beating that plow horse trying to run for his life and he remembers as he's running as the headless horseman is catching up to him that if he can only cross the bridge the horseman cannot follow so he heads for the bridge and he crosses it so he's safe but the horseman comes across the bridge maybe because he has his head he takes his glowing head and throws it at Ichabod crane hitting him in the face that sounds so unpleasant. The next day, Ichabod is missing. Well, he got hit in the head by a glowing head. <laughs> of course he's missing. The farmer finds his borrowed horse wandering around. No saddle. Not too happy. Finds the trampled saddle. Also not too happy. Also finds Ichabod's discarded hat and a shattered pumpkin. So are we to believe that the head of the Headless Horseman was actually just a jack-o'-lantern? I don't know. Because they can't find Ichabod anywhere. They search the creek. They can't find his body. And they kind of just dismiss it. You know, they said he was a bachelor. He didn't owe money to anybody. He wasn't part of the community. So they were kind of like, oh well. <laughs> Guess when they get a new school teacher. You know, it's shocking how long that attitude sticks around in America. Where Still it's like. <laughs> Yeah, he probably just left. Like, if you go report somebody over 15 missing, they're like, nah, he probably just left. Whatever. So later, an old farmer comes by, and mm -hmm. he'd recently been to New York, and he told them that he had heard of Ichabod Crane, and that he'd become a politician. That actually sounds like the perfect line of work for Ichabod. But, you know, no one wanted to really believe that. That's not a fun ending. It depends on if he was a good politician or not, really. Yeah. The, you know, the old Dutch wives... 
would always tell the story as it became legend. And he says, The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of this matter, <laughs> maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. And it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. And when they'd ask a Brom Bones about it, he wouldn't say anything. He would just laugh. Well, what happened to Katrina? Katrina married Brom Bones. So she's Katrina Von Tassel Bones. And the schoolhouse was no longer used, and it was said to be haunted by the ghost of the old schoolmaster. So you made another ghost? Lots of ghosts, because this town... Ah, is the mystical, magical mystery place. Right. And so we got to look at this from the point that Washington Irving was trying to push across. This is a legend. It's right there in the title. It's in the title. So legends have to have some some basis in fact a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And have real historical figures as part of them, right? Right. And so the Headless Hessian, which why didn't he use that alliteration? That's wonderful. The Headless Hessian Horseman. Right. Could have done a threefer. Yeah, J.K. Rowling would have been all about that. <laughs> well, he did Brom Bones and the Headless Horseman already. He might have. They might have been pals, he and J.K. And so there was a Headless Hessian. In the Battle of White Plains during the American Revolution, American General William Heath wrote later in his journal. I thought you were going to say William Heath, and I was like, Heath the Headless Hessian? <laughs> that a Hessian artilleryman was decapitated by an American cannonball. Quote, a shot from the American cannon at the place took off the head of Hessian artilleryman. One of the artillery horses was also left dead on the field. What other loss they sustained is not known. And so this was published in 1798, and it's very likely that Irving read the journal. I think that is very likely, and I like that you have the dead horse, too. So it's like, why is this horse a ghost? Well, there was a dead horse, too, so we can just chalk that up to being true. Why not? Right, and Irving later wrote that he originally heard the story of the Headless Horseman from an African-American mill hand at the old Sleepy Hollow Mill. Okay, so folklore. Yeah, and so by that time, around 1798, the Headless Horseman had become folklore, had become this local legend. Yeah, I mean, I, I would tell that story. And so we've got a little bit of basis in fact. And then we talked about, hey, the t it's in the title. Legend. Mm -hmm. He is writing a legend. Which is an interesting concept to set out to compose an original legend. Well, why is that so interesting in this case? So America was a burgeoning power in a political sense at this time, but it was also looking for an identity and it would continue looking for an identity until the 1950s. See who's afraid of the big bad gay mafia. One of our earlier episodes. I think that there's some desire to create folklore and to explore the history and to give sort of a literary credibility to the tradition of American storytelling. No, I agree. So one of the criticisms of American culture was that you can't have culture without history. Oh, so we're just going to build history. <laughs> exactly. And so he sets this legend up like it's this old story. He says things like, this town was found by ancient Dutch sailors. <laughs> that it is set in a remote period of American history, which is literally 30 years before this was published. 
It's like he knew it would be a long time ago one day. And then he also gives that natural history of spookiness to the area that this place is really supernatural since the Native American wizards. Well, I think that he is pointing out the fact, however clumsily, that the history of America didn't start with white people. It's interesting that he points that out. He's He was thinking. He was. And I think that he may have drawn on the way a lot of older British legends incorporate that Druid character, oh, yeah. Druid figure, something like that, like the shamanistic, supernatural. And, you know, I think that the Native American burial ground has as much pull here as like, oh, uh, this is a place where they did Celtic sacrifice, Druid sacrifice. Well, it, it's still like a, such a thing in American stories, especially scary stories. Like this was built on an ancient Indian burial ground, like The Shining. Poltergeist for sure. Yeah. Can't forget all those dead bodies popping up. And yeah, and so even the title allows it to be kind of a ghost story. They say in the story, local tales and superstition thrive best in these long sheltered, long settled retreats. For the ghost in the generality of our villages have scarce had time to take their first nap and turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends had traveled away from the neighborhood. And he was talking about in America. People were moving a lot. There were not these long-settled, homogenous communities. Right, and they weren't culturally settled, I guess. Like, they, they hadn't had time to establish a culture within these smaller communities. You didn't have that, like, oh, well, he's from Texas, so attitude yet, you know? Like, there was no defined... Right, you had people moving from Connecticut to New York. Ugh, the nerve! It's yanks. The nerve! So... This was written in 1819, and that would have made it a contemporary to the dark romantics. I love the dark romantics. They're some of my favorite romantics. Let's be honest, they are my favorite romantics. So the dark romantics, that's a literary niche. So who's included in these? Well, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who wrote The Scarlet Letter. House of Seven Gables. Mm, all good stuff. And Herman Melville. Moby Dick. That's questionable, but his short fiction, things like Bartleby the Scrivener, right, very much fits within it. And then you have the piece of resistance. The Ed- king of dark romantics. Edgar Allan Poe. Of course. Over there with his raven and his Annabelle Lee and the his pit cousin. and the pension. <laughs> Shh. Ever think that Jerry Lee Lewis is Edgar Allan Poe reincarnated? Just saying. Just throwing that out there. He's just a nut from Louisiana. <laughs> So many people are. But yeah, you have the Telltale Heart, Pit and the Pendulum, all, everything Poe wrote, like some of the others. It's like, well, there are works, there are selected works that would fit within the category. Poe was just like that. And Poe had a self-referential mocking um, tendency as well, where he would like turn inward and like kind of exploit uh, literary tradition in a way that suited his stories. And that's something you see here with Irving as well, where he's like very aware of the tropes that he is utilizing and subverting. Is he also building tropes as well? What would you think? Like, what do you think is an original idea? Like that doesn't harken back to, I guess he's more adapting them. 
I think yeah. I think subverting may be the right word, where he's like taking the idea of the noble knight on the steed. Right, that's one thing that he does. He kind of describes this gray hero, anti-hero, as a as a noble knight. So, you know, whenever he's going off to meet Katrina, he says, Though Ichabod has fixed his sights on Katrina, he is now faced with difficulties. Those more complicated than the giant's dragons and enemies of knights errant in stories who never seem to struggle much to surmount these hurdles and win the heart of the lady. It's again, very like tongue in cheek. We know Ichabod's kind of a jerk. Like, we know we're in on the joke. Right. Definitely. And yet we see him cast as the knight. And that's a little silly because knights are pure heroes and they have quests and blah, blah, blah. And they have good intentions. But then we are going to call out those old legends and say they never seem to struggle much. Like they accomplish all their tasks with relative ease. That's not realistic. And this is where you kind of get that. I mean, this is just a tradition of American literature is we want realism. We mm. want realism and we get it with this kind of anti-hero. But we are going to write in this kind of overly florid style about him and point out the absurdity of the tradition while pointing out the realistic nature of the character. So it's interesting to me. Right. In Romanticism, all of Romanticism, it has a huge element of imagination. Mm-hmm. And that's why the dark romantics and the supernatural fit in so well. And they also like to talk about nature and things like that. There's this idea in Romanticism that it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling in like true Romanticism. And so I think that there is sort of a, a mockery of that with the dark romantics where it's like... We're going to take that idea that this just like erupts from you when you have nothing else like and you just can't contain it. But we're going to make that bad stuff. It's like the negative emotions Mm -hmm. overflowing. Yeah. So it's fear or shame or embarrassment, guilt, you know, all these really powerful feelings that like and they've written in a very experiential way for the reader. But that's where the darkness comes in. Usually there is some maybe supernatural element. I would say they they lean toward magical realism. Which did not exist yet. Right? Not not in its modern form. No. Man, they're the founding fathers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I love about this story is that, like all of our legends, like our urban legends we talk about, it has Providence, in a way. Rhode Island now? <laughs> Connecticut and Rhode Island? No. No, 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 geography nerd. Not that way. So, Irving has this character in several of his books and stories. Mm-hmm. Called Mr. Knickerbocker. <laughs> okay, the man really is a genius when it comes to names. I mean, like... He's great. Props. Props, Irving. And he's this kind of Dutch historian of the time that travels around and wants to learn about the cultures of the people. The ancient Dutch. Exactly. Ancient American Dutch. He is an early folklorist. If only he had someone to bicker with. Yes, he needed to find someone, but he really is. So Irving, who is writing under the pseudonym of Crayon. What? Says. Wait, who's Crayon? Where Crayon? That's what this book is called. The sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. Gent. <laughs> so we have now two layers. And our man Crayon mm-hmm. has collected 
Knickerbocker's papers after his death. Knickerbocker's dead? You didn't tell me that. And Knickerbocker has a story that he has written down that it was told to him. And it is the story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Do we know who told him the story? We don't. We don't have a person that told it to him. Okay, so he took down... Wait, wait, wait. Let me just pause here. This guy's like traveling around. Mm-hmm. Wants to learn about culture. Yes. And he's writing down... He's learning about history through culture. And he's writing down accounts. First-hand accounts of stories in oral tradition. This is amazing. Right. And so after the story is done, there's a postscript. And it is found in the handwriting of Mr. Knickerbocker. Okay, is this his postscript to the legend of Sleepy Hollow? To the legend. Okay. He recounts how he was telling this story. And he says, in his handwriting, the preceding tale is given almost in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting of the ancient city of Manhuts. So one of the facets of ethnography or collecting firsthand accounts that you learn about when you're studying folklore is transcription. And when you are transcribing stories from oral tradition, it is encouraged that you make note of dialect and linguistic flourish and that you try to capture every um and ah. And so when you read, like I have a Cinderella case book, right? And it's a bunch of firsthand tellings of Cinderella. And it's painful to read because you're reading like all the ums and ands and ums and like, oh, I don't know about that or whatever. And all of those like speech artifacts are preserved. And so it's interesting to study, you know, side by side because you see that people always hesitate in the same place or they always kind of go off on their own way round about this turn or whatever. So it's really interesting that he took it upon himself to preserve those artifacts. Well, I don't know if the artifacts are necessarily preserved in the story, but he at least gets that idea across. Well, even if he just took it down in his words, that's interesting. Rather than summarizing. Right. And then again, he adds another layer of like, this is an ancient story, the ancient city. So Manitos is an obsolete name, even at the time, for the Native Americans that were living on the island of Manhattan. So instead of saying, hey, I was at a meeting in New York with some guys and I heard this story, he's like, on the ancient city. I love it. And another great element that he adds on in the end in this postscript, I mean, everyone's listening and they're all just completely buying into the story. And you know, one old guy is like, I don't believe that story. So my dad's there, and he says, oh, bear's ass. And it says, faith, sir, replied the storyteller. As to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. Well, that sounds like the ancient equivalent of man like, man, I don't know if it's true or not, bruh, but it's fine. I'm just saying my friend told me this story. I don't know if it's true. I read it on Facebook. So what we are getting is the image of passing along an urban legend. Right. And this is just very easily can be described as one of the first great American ghost stories, along with like Poe's work and Hawthorne's work. <laughs> and apparently Cotton Mather's work. <laughs> so 
context, I really do think that this is a very intentional examination of American culture, heritage, and history on Irving's part. I agree. And I believe this to be so, especially because he wrote this while in England. True. He was touring around Europe. So this Yankee trucks back across the pond, or boats back across the pond, and he goes back to Europe where they keep the history, where the history comes from. And he's feeling maybe a little bit sensitive about not having any history. And so he's like, fuck it. I'll make my own. You think? Oh, definitely. He's, he's like, I'm going to write my own legend. Like, they have all these great legends. I wish we had legends. I should write one. I'll write a legend. And I think there's something so great about the intentionality of it. And it also, like, so reminds me of a lot of the things we talked about during our creepy pasta episode. Where it was like this intentionally created, manufactured folklore. It's like, we want to make folklore. We right. want to make these stories and pass them around and start the tradition. And I think that's what he's trying to do, is he's trying to start the tradition of American legend. Right, and just build up this American culture for this new country. Do you realize how important it is that we looked at this story with our podcast? Like, where do American legends come from? Well, they come from Washington Irving. <laughs> like, we figured it out. Like, I feel like we just answered the podcast. <laughs> We're done. Bye, guys. <laughs> so we started with one headless rider, went to another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Motorcycle horse, same thing. But man... These stories, these American legends, are so similar. They really are. And I think that it draws on something sort of deep in the American subconscious. Because we have the idea of trying to escape war all in one piece. That kind of permeates both of them. Even in the story, even in the Sleepy Hollow story, there's only been one more. They start recounting those war stories. War stories lead to ghost stories. Yes. Because people are haunted by war. They're dealing with that idea. And war and death are very easily conflated in the imagination. So you have a character who is faced with that. Faced with those conflated ideas of war and death being cut down in the prime of their life. In a gruesome way, you have a love triangle in both stories. You have Brahm and Ichabod and Katrina. And then you have your soldier and his true love and the man that she loved instead. The draft dodger. He had to be, right? (laughs) Like, let's pass judgment. (laughs) Sure, let's pass judgment on this fake person. Definitely a draft dodger. He's not fake. They just didn't talk about it. Mm, you're right. So there's competition between men. I would argue that of the stories we've covered, like this story deals directly with the idea of challenging masculinity and presentation of masculinity more than anything else we've talked about. It really does. Ichabod, even though he's kind of a farcical character, saying that he's finished a few books, that's a quote. <laughs> He still represents the learned man mm-hmm. versus the more traditional hero of Brom Bones. Who is more like athletic or... He's like a trick rider. Oh, yeah. He never rides a tamed horse. 
how does he keep finding more untamed horses? <laughs> I see a plot hole. And then you have this guy who's like outpouring affection while he's away at war versus the guy who can offer physical affection while she's there. So you have these two competing ideals in that realm. I think that you're supposed to believe this guy didn't go to war. And you're automatically supposed to have more sympathy for the writer. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he's portrayed as a good guy, sending letters to her all Loyal. the time. Loyal to his country, loyal to his girl. And so then you have the shady character who's like causing all kinds of ruckus while he's away. And so you have these like competing ideas about masculinity that have to face off somewhere. And where do they face off? At the threshold between the deep, dark woods and the civilized town. Well, yes. At the bridge. At this narrow opening. I'm going to get a little Freudian. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're competing for entry into the opening. And safe passage through. And they're headless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, not Freud. Freud! (laughs) So, yeah, you have a very visceral story in both instances. You have two men competing... For one woman. And then they face off at the bridge. And somebody may lose a head. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying it's Freudian. I'm just saying it's Freudian. I'm not saying the bridge is a vagina. I'm just saying the bridge is a vagina. Sometimes a headless horseman is just brown bones. <laughs> wearing a, a long cloak with a pumpkin. But man, the dramatic or, flair. Or is it? Or is it? Yeah, so... There are a lot of similarities between the two stories. They tap into something very primal and very American. Well, you know, you mentioned that he was in Europe when he wrote this story. Yes. And there are several traditions in Europe of headless horsemen. Say it ain't so. So one of the most classic and probably who this headless horseman is most based on is a fairy of Celtic folklore mm-hmm. called the Dullahan. The Dullahan. And, and he's, he's headless and he rides a horse. Yes. And he rides a black horse and he carries his head under his inner lower thigh or holding it high to where he can see a great distance looking into the houses of the dying. Kind Ooh, of is he a grim reaper? Yeah, he's this harbinger of death. Oh, no. But he's a little different than a banshee who could warn you that something bad might happen. Like, you were dying and he was coming to take you away. So he is a literal, like, grim reaper figure. If you see the headless horseman, you're done. It's like the nursing home cat. (laughs) Exactly. And his head glows with an eerie light that's used to illuminate his way. He has a whip made from a human spine. Okay, that is the darkest shit I've ever heard in my life. I love it. And if you do stumble upon him in the woods, he'll whip your eyes out with this. Like if you're not supposed to see him? Right. <gasps> and he is constantly riding, and if he stops riding, it's to call out the name of the person that's about to die. That is so metal! <laughs> oh my god, I feel like he needs his own comic book. Like Ghost Rider? Like Ghost Rider, Sure. So there's a question of, you know, like, why is he headless? Sometimes he's just headless. Sometimes he and the horse are headless. <gasps> what a twist. <laughs> I love that. Where's the horse's head? He's like carrying his head around. The horse. I don't know. 
But a lot of times he has his head, and he's described as having sparks and fire shooting from his nostrils. So is the head functional? Well, he uses it to light his way. So it's like a lantern. Yes, like a jack-o'-lantern. Oh. That's not where jack-o'-lanterns come from. We'll get to that in a few episodes, most likely. Everyone's so excited. I just heard everyone get so excited. And it's thought that he may be the embodiment of an ancient Celtic god, the Cromdub, which was a fertility god that demanded sacrifice. And guess how he liked people to be sacrificed to him? Decapitation. Beheading. Nah. And it was thought that the soul was in the head by the Celtics, which, hey, that's kind of accurate. <laughs> It's better than some theories. Where did the Egyptian thing the soul were? The liver. Yeah. At that time, if a foe was a worthy one, their head would be taken and would add to the warrior's prestige. Where would they take it? Just home? They have a head shelf? Was it like a trophy room? Well, sometimes they'd impale it. Oh, I was picturing like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast, like that kind of bar scene where they have all the animal heads around, but with people. <laughs> Do you do all your decorating? I use antlers in all of my decorating. My word of God. It's good. I've got to stop singing. <laughs> and so while that is the most likely source for this headless horseman, there are still several other traditions, like in Germany. Oh, God. It's, that's where the Grimm's were taking down notes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not going to be good, is it? So, it's known that Washington Irving was very familiar with the Grimm's and German folklore. Okay. Obviously. And they actually have two stories with these kind of ghost, ghostly huntsmen. Only one's headless. And that is the tale of Hans Jagentoffel. Jagentoffel. It sounds like a curse word. <laughs> yeah, I would say he's familiar with the Grimm's since he basically invented... A grim character. Like, that's the only comparison he would have had for that kind of ethnography at that point. And in this story, a poor peasant girl is out in the woods collecting acorns. As you do. And she sees a rider pass in the distance. This dark figure, she's kind of kind of worried about it, but collects her acorns, goes home. Nine days later, as she's collecting acorns, she hears a voice come from behind her. She turned around and saw a rider in a gray cloak carrying his head which was covered with curling brown hair under his arm the spirit said ye do well to pray to god to forgive you for your sins it was never my good lot to do so then he related his story how he lived about 130 years before and was called hans jagentoffel as his father had been before him, and how his father had often besought him not to be too hard upon poor people, how he had paid no regard to the advice his father had given him, but had passed his time in drinking and carousing, and in all manner of wickedness, for which he was now condemned to wander about the world as an evil spirit. So he sort of, you know, lost his head, made some bad decisions. True. And is warning this poor young girl to get right with God. <laughs> I mean, like, she's done nothing that she needs to repent for. I don't know that acorn collecting is a major sin. Well, and early in the story, in the Grimm's recount, it's commonly believed that if any person is guilty of a crime for which he deserves to lose his head, he will, 
if he escaped punishment during his lifetime, is condemned after his death to wander about with his head under his arm. So the crimes that would have condemned a person to that kind of punishment are decision-making, like willfully disobeying law. Um, or, or being a bad person. In this case, he's, he's not following the ways that God would want him to. And he's doing it willfully. Like, oh, he right. knows better. His father warned him, and right. he decided not to. And so while he may not have died, while he walked this earth, he is now condemned to walk it with his head under his arm. Well, he did die while he was walking the earth, but he may not have died that way. Right, right. Yeah? Right. <laughs> I think it's safe to say the headless guy probably died. <laughs> Just saying. Most likely. So we've got the German version. We've got the Celtic version. Right, and there are other very similar stories in other Northern European countries. And Scandinavia has a similar headless horseman story. Do they have any, any of them riding goats? Well, you know, some people do point to the wild hunt as a possible source for inspiration. Well, that's honestly what came to mind. There is a headless horseman in the medieval account of the wild hunt that I read through. We'll go through that because we've talked about it in a few different episodes in the Christmas episode a million years ago, in the Night Marchers episode. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for having your whole body all buried together. That's a that's a big thing. A lot of the times if you're separated from yourself, that means that you did something really bad. Like being drawn and quartered. The things that you would get drawn and quartered for were significant. High treason was really the only reason for a long time. Like like William Wallace? Like William Wallace. And technically, that was kind of treasonous. But, you know, whatever. Treason was bandied about quite a bit. I, I think that they had a very loose definition of what treason was. I am passing judgments on our predecessors. <laughs> I'm not related to them. They weren't, my, they weren't my predecessors. We well, they we, did live and be humans before us. We're, I, mean, I didn't say ancestors. My predecessors just beheaded all of the royalty. Yeah. But efficiently. Drawing and quartering was reserved for the crime of high treason. It was considered the worst punishment that could be doled out to pretty much anybody. So if you hear of someone being hanged, drawn, and quartered... They really are hanged for a minute, cut down, drawn means that they are eviscerated. Ooh. Then their intestines are thrown into a cauldron in front of them, which is awful. And then they're beheaded and then they're quartered. Okay, so we've talked about a few different kind of folk ideas of why one would be beheaded. Right. And beheading is... I know what it sounds like. I mean, it's like taking the head off. You take the head of a company down, head of a country, head person in charge. So when you take the head off of a person, you remove their reasoning, their knowledge, their decision making, their soul, apparently, and also their identity. What makes them recognizable. It was the seat of knowledge. It was the seat of honor, loyalty, sense of right and wrong. And so when that was removed... It was because that part of them was sick. Part of them was wrong, and they're removing the problem. And their head on backwards. <laughs> right. Get your head on straight. And also, it was a very important trophy. Right, you could parade that through the streets. Well, the, I mean, London Bridge was covered in heads. At one point, they had a giant that was in charge of maintaining the heads. 
because he could reach them on the pikes. He was a real giant. He was like seven, six or something. But anyway, it's another story for another day. The quartering is something that I think also packs a lot of significance because there is a belief that, and there is the persistent belief, that's why some people don't do cremation, that there would be a resurrection during the second coming and the literal bodies would be raised from the graves. Right, souls reunited with their bodies. Which I don't think they understood decomposition properly, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) We'll give them a pass. When you're quartered, you're cut into quarters. Four pieces. They would take the pieces to different places, the four corners of the earth, kind of. Just different geographical locations. As they did with Mel Gibson. I mean, William Wallace. William Wallace, yes. As they did. They took his body to four of his major victory sites, right? I think that's true. Emasculation was also commonly part of this practice, but we don't need to talk about all that. And that was burned along with the intestines. (laughs) So that was done because... It was believed that if the body was separated from itself, their soul could never be reunited with their body. So they were truly damned for eternity. Right. They were not only obliterating their physical life, but they were obliterating their spiritual potential. God might forgive you, but you still don't get to get back together. You still don't get a second chance. We've done away with you forever and always. So it was really the worst thing that could happen to a person. And as you can imagine... If this happens accidentally, if you are not buried whole, imagine the torment. The body would come back looking for the rest. Because it knows that its soul will never be right until it's all together. And so the tradition of these headless horsemen has been around for millennia, for ages and ages. Sure. And you know, not to chase a rabbit, but I came across another headless horseman story in the United States, and I thought we should at least just quickly... Share it. Okay, no, that I don't want to chase a rabbit. I don't want to... Guess where it is. Is it in Texas? Let's talk about it now. <laughs> it's in Texas. Okay. So this is the story of El Muerto. El Muerto. Okay, I'm listening. You have my attention. So this takes place in the 1800s in South Texas, around the no man's land between Mexico and Texas. And of course it involves some famous Texas rangers. Because you need some credibility. Right, so Chuck Norris, I mean, um, so we have this Mexican outlaw, this bandito. Okay, Pancho. Vidal, and he was a cattle rustler, and in the 1850s, he stole numerous horses and cattle from a ranch near San Antonio, owned by the famous ranger Creed Taylor. Creed is his first name. Yes. God, that's a good name. It's good. It's an Irving level name. It's a real person. I know. It's amazing. (laughs) So Bigfoot Wallace, one of the other rangers, heard about this. Wallace, Texas Ranger. Bigfoot. Bigfoot, Texas Ranger. Okay, either way you go, it's a winner. He heard about that his ranger buddies' cattle and horses were stolen. And Creed, Ranger Creed, Texas Ranger, was off fighting Indians. As you do when you're a Texas Ranger, exactly. right? Okay. And so he went off to find Vidal, this bandito. So he chased after this bandito, and they caught up with him at night with mm-hmm. his gang. Because it's a ghost story and has to happen at night, yeah. And they beheaded Vidal. For stealing cattle? Of course. It was Ranger's cattle. Oh, uh, well, fair. And they <laughs> took Vidal's body, and they tied it 
to a Mustang. Named Sally. They took his head and sombrero. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just reporting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. And attached it to his saddle. Like on the thing? On the pommel. On the pommel. And the pommel. <laughs> and released him into the Texas brushland. Yeah, that'd make a ghost. And so this figure of a decapitated headless rider attached to a wild Mustang riding around the South Texas brushland was seen and reported by many a farmer. Is the, like ranchers. okay? I know the people are real, but is that true? I, you know, it's a it's a legend. Oh my god, it's maybe a good one. Fact. So he became this bad omen, and so they gathered a posse. Yes, <laughs> and went <laughs> to capture this Mustang riding around with a headless horseman. So they went to capture the horse because the horseman's obviously dead. Well, yeah, I guess, maybe. And they finally did catch him and they found that the body was still attached and it was riddled with bullet holes and arrows. So everybody that saw this thing coming was like, kill it! Kill it now! Wouldn't you? Yes! I mean, throwing pins at it. That's all I have. I'm poorly protected in the case of a headless horseman invasion. And so after catching up with him in Alice, Texas, and pulling the dried up corpse of Vidal off the horse, they continued to see the figure of a headless horseman riding around the Texas wilderness. And he is still seen to this day. (gasps) It's like they wanted to make a ghost. (laughs) It's like they tried. Like, we'll make a ghost. But that was your Texas Folklore Minute. Brought to you by Blue Bonnets and Chili. And Lone Star Beer. And Dale Watson. <laughs> the National Beer of Texas. All right. Okay. So we had our Texas fun. But back to the story at hand. That's my line. Back to the story at head. So I was interested to see, like, where the connection between decapitation heads and soldiers went after world war one because we've talked about kind of how motorcycles and soldiers and death and crashes and everything got conflated but what happened later so i looked in the next logical place would that be world war ii yeah i just added one and i found out something kind of deeply disturbing there was a big tradition practice of Japanese head taking during World War Two. What do you mean? I mean, you know, we were fighting the Japanese. I think I remember that. Okay, yeah. And, you know, they had heads. Most likely. I mean, some of the propaganda might point away. <laughs> we took them. <laughs> oh. So... They stumbled on the practice of head-taking, the Allies, when they parachuted into the Borneo jungles. And a local tribe there was very keen on it. So they were like, that's a great idea. They were like, oh, that's terrible. And two weeks later, they were like, we should do that. (laughs) And I want to say that a lot of the research and some of the quotes I will be using throughout this portion come from a wonderful book called Severed. A History of Heads Lost and Found by Francis Larson. And if you haven't read it, maybe you should pause, go read it, and learn about heads. Lots of them. Severed ones. 
Why? There cropped up this practice of taking heads. And it became kind of a little niche industry for some of the soldiers. Like, there was a demand for these souvenirs back stateside. And some people were doing this for profit. They would take teeth and fingers and ears, but they'd also take full, honest-to-God, true-story heads. And some of the men, like, kind of came up with a way to go about doing this, where they could make some skulls. You don't just make a skull. Well, they'd take the heads and they'd boil them in oil drums in order to deflesh them. And then, and then they would put them out in the sun to bleach. Hmm. And then they'd send them back to America, where people wanted them. Who would they send them to? Well, it varied. Sometimes they would send them to people who were willing to pay for them, who were just interested in having this like talisman or totem of victory over the inferior Japs. And I'm like so quoting. I'm not saying Japs like that, I promise. Sometimes they would send them back to loved ones, and sometimes they would make things out of bone. For example, have you heard of Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Did he have polio? He did, he did. He was very famous for having polio. He was actually given a letter opener that was crafted from the bone of a Japanese soldier. Ooh, I'm guessing the Japanese found out about this. Well, they did because life magazine ran a photo of a young girl staring at the skull of a Japanese soldier that had been sent to her by her sweetheart who was all fighting in the Pacific theater. So much better than flowers. So much better. It makes the trip just no problem. On the forehead of the skull, they had carved the words, this is a good Jap. And all the men of the platoon had signed it. As in a dead Jap. Yeah. Is a good Jap. Yeah. So that was sent back. Some people would carve various bones into little trinkets and send them back. Some people sent teeth. Teeth were a big thing. But it was just sort of a, a souvenir. Just a little, hi, how are ya? I mean, how did this practice become so entrenched in the United States military? Well, the Japanese theater of war was literally physically very different from the European theater, where that was more urban and there was more of a division between forces in Japan and the surrounding areas, it was much more wooded. And guerrilla warfare. Right. There was more of a chance of ambush. There was more of a chance of accidentally coming across a group of soldiers. And there was something about that kind of very physical, visceral, hand-to-hand... Face-to-face. Face-to-face combat that sort of allowed this practice to flourish. Now, with that being said... This practice seems to be specifically relegated in the modern era to the Pacific theater. So they weren't doing this in Europe. I mean, you always hear about, you know, my grandpa's German Luger he brought back hanging on the wall. Do you always? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, my grandfather was in the Pacific theater. So this is actually very hard for me to read. Because I know that my grandfather had a trunk full of possessions that he threw off the train. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. So that never made it home. They had to officially petition the United States government in order to get him another Purple Heart. 
He fought in the Battle of Okinawa. This is actually really hard for me to research. Like, I feel really strange about, like, the level of uncomfortable I was with this. You have to wonder what was in the trunk besides the Purple Heart. Yeah, I know. And I have. I never met my grandfather. And I still have a weirdness about this. So, no, this this happened in the Pacific Theater specifically. And it happened um, a lot in Africa when the British were fighting. And... You can't help but see that when there are racial differences, this practice is far more prevalent and can become entrenched far more easily. Well, you also have to think about the terrible propaganda that the Allies were using against the Japanese. I think of in the D-Day Museum, which is in New Orleans, which if you've not been there, pause. (laughs) Book a flight. And go, because it is an amazing museum. And the restaurant there? is a John Besh restaurant. And oh my God, the pickles. Oh my God. No, but really. So back to beheaded people. Um, (laughs) But they really dehumanized people. They really dehumanized the Japanese. Well, okay. So let let me put it this way. So the Germans, when they were depicted as animals, and they were. Oh, for sure. They were depicted as dachshunds. The Japanese were depicted as yellow rats. Mm. It's bad. I mean, like it makes my stomach upset to think about it. So I was talking about the D-Day Museum. They have this great wall. It's like a half wall in the Pacific Theater wing. On one side is all the American propaganda. They're not pulling punches. They are showing the worst stuff you can imagine. But on the other side, it has the Japanese propaganda against the Americans. And it's just as terrible, but it is so fascinating to see how much each side was just dehumanizing the other side. Right, and so that definitely played a part in it. And this sort of writing and physical depicting of the Japanese as being subhuman really carried into the zeitgeist of the camps of American soldiers. There were rumors that the Japanese could see in the dark and that they could climb trees like cats and wait. And that once you'd been there a little while, you would learn how to smell them. And they had a gamey animal smell. So they took these skulls, these souvenirs, because they were hunting the Japanese. Recruiting stations during World War II even issued Japanese hunting licenses, no limit. Oh my god. Isn't that terrible? Doesn't that make you want to punch yourself in the face just for existing? By the way, do you know what the girl's skull was named in Life magazine before we move on? What was that? Tojo. Oh, Emperor Tojo. Yeah. And it says it. Japanese got a little little annoyed. And the US was like, hey, we can't officially sanction this anymore. We have to frown on this practice. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt apparently gave back his letter opener and sent it home to have a proper burial. Thanks, Franklin. I imagine that he had a wheelchair constructed out of rib bones <laughs> waiting back for him at the White House. He was like, those motherfuckers don't know. <laughs> Gleefully. So there's no question that there was this definite twist of American morals. Right. One soldier said there was an inversion of normal social morality which eroded boundaries and made savages of us all. All of war is an authorized transgression. Behaving violently on command is a problem with a military comprised of a large conscripted army. And that's from 
Francis Larson's book. Throughout training, soldiers are encouraged to discard their civilian identity. I become the warrior. Correct. They're given a new morality, where aggression is rewarded and the enemy is dehumanized. There's a systematic erosion of human values. They should react violently in combat and then shift back to being good boys when they've just done something that good boys would never do. A problem that's still seen today. There's one passage where there's this Marine talking about his CO's orders if he comes across wounded Japanese soldiers. He says, if you found an enemy wounded, you would just reach down and if you had a fixed bayonet, and again, this is his own words, you should just cut his head off. Maybe pump a few rounds into him for good measure. If you couldn't kill the dead, you weren't psychologically fit for combat. It says so much about the new morality that these soldiers had to take. Right. They were forced to reject everything that had been preached to them since they were wee boys. And of course, taking these skulls was was trophy taking. Yeah. And most of the time, they really were taking skulls like very few soldiers it was only certain platoons that would even allow it would take anything that had flesh still attached but there was so much death they were so surrounded by death that they could literally walk out into the field and find a skull and these skulls were like you said sent home they were brought home by the soldiers like one of my favorite things i read was about this girl who had grown up seeing a skull that her grandfather had taken in the Pacific, and they all called it Oscar, and it sat on our bookshelf. Oscar the Jap Skull. <laughs> Oscar the Jap Skull. Da, da, da. It sounds like a PBS cartoon. But it was like signed by all the members of the platoon. It was given a place of honor on the bookshelf, and it was just always there. And eventually, I think a daughter-in-law or a granddaughter-in-law came along with her crazy hippie values and was like, we should probably send this back to Japan. We should, it's probably not nice. It's just a little not nice that we have this. Even if you've named him Oscar, I think he wants to go home. So they were going to send it back. The family decided to send it back. And this granddaughter was outraged. She was like, that's special. That belongs to my grandfather. And I thought it was so interesting. Because it was like normalized in such a, an outstanding way. But there are a lot of stories of people like finding these in their grandfather's attic. So there's this great story in that book of this guy named Sai Khan, who was a 19-year-old United States soldier. And when he entered the war, he wrote in his journal that he was the kind of guy that was more comfortable with a book or a violin in his hand than with a rifle. He was your, your Ichabod Crane character. Kind of, yeah. He was, your, he was your lover, not a fighter. Yeah. Or motorcyclist. All he wanted to do was to write romantic poetry. <laughs> Spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. So he had just kind of gotten to the Pacific and he kind of made a buddy and he and his buddy decided they were going to go exploring and they went out into the jungle and found an abandoned Japanese hospital. It's the start of a scary movie. You know, when I read that, I was like, oh God. But they were walking back from exploring the medical hospital and he looked down and noticed that there was a skull just on the ground and he couldn't be sure if it was an American skull or a Japanese skull, but by the shape of the sockets and the way the cheekbones were situated, he really thought it was a Japanese soldier. So he brings it back to camp with him. And he and his roommate decide that it's going to have a place of honor. And they put it between their two cots. 
and they put a candle on top of it and use it as a candle holder. They read by the light of the skull, the glowing skull, right? Right. There's this great passage where he's talking about how he brought it back to kind of ease the tension he felt about looming death. Like it gave him some kind of psychological outlet. It gave him this feeling of control. And that's so often what the idea of head taking can represent in battle. It's that pause, you know, where the hero in the chaos of battle lifts up the tyrant's head and for a moment everything becomes still. Enemy is vanquished. I have proof. Because there's nothing more human than a head, than a skull. It's that person's identity. It's unquestionable. It's their mortality. It is mortality. You can exist without an arm. You can find a hand. That person may be fine. But if you find a skull, that life is over. And so it's this classic image of the warrior hoisting the head up. I think about Macduff at the end of Macbeth. Mm. You know, he comes out and cursed head. Or, you know, it's David and Goliath. It's, it's Medusa. It's bring me his head on a plate. It's Salome and John the Baptist. It's this incredible tradition we have. They have been vanquished they no longer live. And so in that spirit, looking for the control, the psychological outlet, this young aesthete brings the skull back to his tent and uses it as a candle holder to read by, because what else would he do with it? But he finds himself staring at the skull, and it was meant to give him this feeling of power and control and agency. But as he looks at it, he starts ascribing a personality and a history to him. And he says, I wondered if he was a good man or a bad man. I wonder how many Americans he'd killed. And then I realized that it could just as easily be my skull sitting in a Japanese tent. And I didn't feel anything but mortal. So you see that idea of the restless soldier. The soldier pondering his own mortality person who can't go home, who's stuck in a place of death that doesn't fit with his sense of right and wrong. Yeah, that's just a story. It's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.